The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Bhaskar Sankara. We talked about the recent events in Kenosha, Wisconsin and collusion between the far right and the police, whether the frightening prospect of a second Trump administration makes a rerun of the 2016 election result less likely in spite of Joe Biden's underwhelming policy platform, And we also talked about whether the American right may at some point break from its relative economic orthodoxy and move towards advocacy of a meaningful industrial policy. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. As we face the compounded crises of late capitalism, environmental catastrophe and technological transformation, who are the thinkers and the ideas who will allow us to understand the world we live in? In Mackenzie Walk's new book, Sensoria, Thinkers for the 21st Century, she surveys three areas at the cutting edge of current critical thinking, media ecologies, post-colonial ethnographies, and the design of technology, and introduces us to the thinking of 17 major writers who combined contribute to the common task of knowing the world. The book is a vital and timely introduction to the future, both as a warning, but also as a roadmap for how we might find our way out of the current crisis. Sensoria is out now from Verso Books. You can buy it directly from the Verso Books website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Bhaskar Sankara is the founding editor and publisher of Jacobin and the publisher of Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. He's a former vice chair of the Democratic Socialists of America and the author of The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. So we're talking shortly after the events in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old with militia links, murdered two Black Lives Matter protesters and and where videos from before the shooting showed armed militiamen interacting with police in a tactical vehicle who said they appreciated the presence of these people at the protest. How much of a step change do you think we're seeing regarding apparent collusion between police and other law enforcement agencies, the far right and, and the White House? So from the standpoint of if I was talking to a a journalist at a mainstream outlet, what I would tell you is that we should be extremely worried by these blatant connections between right-wingers in the White House, white-wingers in law enforcement, and law enforcement writ large, and these right-wing paramilitaries. Because I am, I am indeed worried. Now, the question that immediately comes to mind of any Marxists or socialists is, does this represent some sort of shift from the right populism of Trump, a right populism that, of course, has mass rallies and has xenophobic and racist rhetoric, but isn't necessarily as extra-parliamentary as fascism is to something else? I don't think it's that yet. I think it has the potential to become that, especially if and when Trump is defeated. 
if Trump suffers a defeat in November, especially if it's the kind of defeat that I think he'll suffer. So I think Trump will lose the election, but because a lot of voters are going to be sending in mail-in ballots, and based on the demographics of who's going to be sending in mail-in ballots and who's going to be voting in person, I think there's a chance that election night is indeterminate. If anything, Trump might have a small lead on election night, but then when all the ballots come in, Trump will end up losing. And I think that might cause a crisis in this country. There also might be a crisis if Trump once again legitimately wins the Electoral College but loses the popular vote by an even more staggering amount than he lost in 2016. So I definitely think the U.S. is headed to some sort of political crisis. I think the presence of the armed far right and these kind of racist vigilantes and others will play a role in how the situation plays out. I do not yet think that we're seeing the morphing of Trumpism into a armed extra-parliamentary force. And often that distinction is one that Lindsay you know plaudits on the left because people often want to hear the most dire warnings. But I should say that the reason why I say this is because I want us to be ready and prepared for when we see the real potential fascist threat in 10, 15 years or sooner. And in the same way in the UK, the way you would draw differentiations between the BNP and UKIP and the EDL, it's not because any of these groups are good. They're all evil in different ways, but the distinction is important from a tactical and strategic standpoint. It's the direction of travel, but you don't feel that we're, that we're quite there yet. Exactly. I sometimes wonder whether on this question, there might have been to a degree the left not being sufficiently cognizant of of the anti-democratic threat posed by Trump, because there's a tendency on the left, often very correctly, to want to emphasize the commonalities between centrist Democrats and Republicans at the level of policy. But I wonder if if you think that maybe that does sometimes serve to underplay the scale of threat that, that Trump and the people around him represent. Well, I think to begin with, we should acknowledge that the Republican Party is to the right of most center-right parties. And that does make a significant difference in the way they govern. But before this period, both U.S. parties had committed to certain norms of governance that fit our our political system that is not very capable of dealing with polarization. So you would have a kind of gentleman's agreement that whatever the campaign trail rhetoric, there would be a way to govern in the Senate, there'd be rules and decorums, a respect for the system, which of course left behind poor and working class people, which of course left the political left completely unrepresented, but that allowed the functioning of government. And now you're at a point where the United States has become much more polarized in an ideological sense, but it's still, if you look at studies of this at least, The United States is not particularly polarized on a world stage. It has roughly average levels of political polarization. We just have a political system that has so many different choke points where a small minority can disrupt policymaking. And I think into this, we're going to see maybe 15, 20 years of extreme dysfunction just vital things not getting passed. We're going to see a political system of a, of a failed state. 
and I don't see much of a way to fix things other than the growth of a strong executive and the continued growth, I should say, of a strong executive and the use of executive orders to bypass Congress, the use of judicial activism by unelected judges to bypass bottlenecked legislative bodies. And it's a really tough situation because the Democrats are structurally screwed up by having this undemocratic Senate and by having the electoral college system. And there's no easy route to, to fixing things. This was one of the goals, obviously, of creating the, the U.S. Constitution was to prevent the tyranny of the majority, to prevent popular passions from, from turning the republic of the elite that the U.S. has founded into, into a real democratic republic, and we're, we're reaping the consequences of it now. So in some sense, the system is working as it's supposed to be working, bizarrely. Well, I would say that the, the system was working as it was intended. Now, I think even from the standpoint of crisis management that would benefit capitalists, the system is not working. We're about to hit 200,000 deaths in the United States from coronavirus. It's around a quarter of the world's total. We have absolutely dilapidated health infrastructure and social infrastructure. Yet, on the other hand, the macroeconomic handling of the crisis and also the 2008 crisis, at least from the perspective of capital in the United States, has been good. It's been better than the response of the European Central Bank to, to crisis. So you're seeing, in other words, the technocrats at the helm of the U.S. state being able to still govern in the interests of, of capital. But in the social crisis, the U.S. not being able to put together a response. And it only partially has to deal with the will. Obviously, these people don't care about poor and working class people, the people in power right now. But the social costs of their neglect is going to impact production. And it's going to create a very volatile situation. I, I think by many measures, we should be talking about the United States as a failed state that's going to have a decreasing amount of legitimacy in its political and representative institutions. And it's only a matter of time before that, that trickles down and starts affecting the, the economy. The question is, Who's the best equipped to deal with this crisis? I think we have to probably say that it's the right. And what really worries me is if this fervor, let's say in Europe, the fervor around immigration in the last five years of European politics has been a fervor that's been created in a context of general abundance, a context where as a percentage of the population, there's not even that massive of a, of a flow inward of, of refugees. And in most countries, migrant workers are actually benefiting the economy and are solving a demographic crisis in the Nordic countries and whatnot. So if in this environment, right-wing populists can create xenophobic, racist narratives, imagine what happens with climate-induced mass migrations of people 20 years from now into countries when there's actually the need for rationing and there's actually a condition of scarcity caused by this this movement. Of course, as a socialist and as an internationalist, I, I believe in allowing the, the free movement of, of people. But if this narrative of scarcity works when there's not actually a scarcity, imagine how well it'll work when there there is actual scarcity potentially in the future. And I think the same thing is true in the U.S., where luckily 
at least on immigration, the U.S. public's view is still far more progressive than in in much of of Europe. But what happens when the power of this 35% right populist minority becomes 50 or 55%? I think we're really in for, for a lot of trouble. And there's no real institutional mechanism for us to carry forward the program of Sandersism. Right now, it's just a media event. We have figures like AOC, we have outlets like Jacobin, we have a host of, of commentators that have been able to plant the flag for some sort of socialist politics in the United States, which is no small feat. But we have no real institutional mechanism to be a mass force in the, in the US. And that, that really does worry me. For that reason, some on the left identified with a more anarchist politics are suggesting that the Sanders moment is is over and we should be starting to think seriously about a more kind of insurrectionary politics. I imagine you wouldn't agree with that, but could you could you explain why? Well, I mean, I, I think I think the reason why is because that kind of politics has not achieved any change really for the for the mass workers movement. So in other words, insurrection is the culmination <laughs> even when it, when it could work, of decades and decades of patient organizing. To me, it's just a tactic. Like, I have no problem with setting a car on fire or, or have no problem with machine breaking on the shop floor, have no problem with any of these things as a discrete tactics. But I think there's a tendency in those traditions to just equate politics with a combination of, of tactics without ideology or, or strategy, uh, without an agent of change. So in other words, who are these forces you're going to galvanize to actually go into revolt? It's not Spain in the 1930s. You don't have even a portion of the workers' movement behind you because there is really no workers' movement constituted. So I think part of our goal right now is still to fight where we have the majority. We have a majority in the U.S. right now for Medicare for All, our battle for universal health care. We have a majority in the U.S. behind defending the post office from privatization. We have a majority, or close to majority, behind a Green New Deal. So we have all these, these agenda points which would push us into a direction where we're both accomplishing positive change in people's day-to-day lives, but we're also building, galvanizing a constituency. Now, I, I think that it's much more boring to say that we need this patient approach of trying to build up institutions, of trying to continue to run down-ballot electoral races, to make a regional base in certain parts of the country, like the southwest of the U.S., where we have a lot of immigrants, a lot of Latino, a lot of poor working class whites and others who are favorably disposed to our our core agenda, but the left basically has no presence. So what would a concerted 10, 15 year organizing program look like there? And I think in politics, there are no shortcuts. And right now, I would never be in a position of condemning someone for trying something. And I think that's one lesson that I drew from the Occupy movement is that it sometimes takes volunteerism. It sometimes takes a group of people just trying something to show us that we're actually further ahead than we thought we were. I thought before the Occupy movement that at best we would be organizing an anti-austerity movement on very traditional grounds. There was a mass union rally 
in late 2010 in Washington, D.C. There was, in 2011, the Wisconsin uprising. So I saw kind of a labor-based, more traditional anti-austerity movement brewing. And I was fairly dismissive. You know, I went and supported the protests of the idea of Occupy Wall Street before it happened. Uh, then it happened, and it sped up the development of the, the whole political moment that's really characterized the last 10 years in such a way that I couldn't have anticipated. So I think that's where we have to be prepared as we pursue our patient strategy to take advantage of openings and to experiment with things and to set out on our, on our 10, 15-year strategy, but realize there might be by year four, year five, a moment that allows us to do five years worth of work in one. Would you see Black Lives Matter in, in similar terms in, in, in the sense that I think a lot of people were surprised by the extent of, of popular support for Black Lives Matter and, and the extent to which the movement has been extremely diverse? Yeah, I think Black Lives Matter, it's such a broad sweeping movement that it encompasses many different people and many different sentiments. But like Occupy, to some degree, there's an aspect of it that is largely a media event. It's an event that is not permanently organizing people, not permanently building institutions, but changing a discourse, a discussion, and people are engaging with it for all sorts of reasons. So when a socialist or when people on the far left or people who are active on in these social media spheres are engaging with it, they're engaging with it as a radical questioning of the foundations of American capitalism itself. When a lot of ordinary people who constitute the bulk of the protesters are engaging with it, they see it in much more narrow and targeted terms as a movement against racial injustice and police violence. All those things are, are valid, but I think we should be clear that there's no unifying program behind it. So it becomes very easy for an institution like the National Basketball Association or for various corporations to turn this into a movement for a true meritocracy, a movement for a world in which race is not a barrier to one's advancement up the corporate ladder, where we could just use vague slogans like equality, even though nothing structurally changes. So I think that we should take it as a sign that people are interested in politics, that people are interested in change, that people are willing to protest, that particularly among black Americans, they're fed up with the status quo and they're fed up with a generation of Democratic Party politicians that have given them nothing in return for their, their loyalty and their, their votes. And that's, that's where I take inspiration from it. But it would be a mistake to ascribe too much coherence to it. And that's where the leadership of trade unionists and socialists and class conscious activists really needs to play a role. It becomes very easy to just tail mass activity and just to say, this is great because there's some activity and we're in the country where there's often no activity. It becomes harder to actually figure out a way to be embedded enough in working class communities that we could actually make interventions credibly without sounding like outsiders and without sounding like just maximalists. Because sometimes an intervention is to say, we need to advance much quicker. Sometimes an intervention is to say, we need to accept a small victory to start building towards another victory. And 
the socialist movement in the U.S. is nowhere near being able to to do that. It's just hard to to state how far behind we are in our historic tasks. You know, we aren't even at the 1890s, you know, building building a party that represents the distinct interests of working people. You know, I, I kind of envy those of you in countries that have had the opportunity to be betrayed by a workers' party because <laughs> we haven't even had that that opportunity. Yeah, I, I may be not uh, sufficiently cognizant of, of the privilege of that. Going back to the point about the the right being, in some respects, in a, in a better position to profit from this moment of, of crisis... Do you think the right is capable of of shifting to a position where it starts to, to quite seriously talk about implementing a meaningful industrial policy, which we saw a lot of rhetoric along those lines to a degree from, from Donald Trump and a, a lot of talk about trying to help workers in the Rust Belt and all this kind of stuff. But it's mostly been rhetorical. But do you think there is there is a danger that they may be able to outflank the left on, on this position? And obviously it would be an industrial policy in the context of a chauvinist right wing racist project. Yeah, I think that there's obviously always a a danger that we should be aware of, but they're very far away from it. I think Trump turned away from bandanism, essentially, the the ideology of of his his former collaborator, sometimes enemy, sometimes friend, Steve Bannon. And essentially, he's governed on the economy like most Republicans would, with the exception of a few largely symbolic tariffs. And to the extent this had any impact, it was a negative impact. It's, it's hard to explain, but the simple version is, I think as socialists, we're not necessarily for trade or for protectionism, we're for creating an industrial policy that supports working people. And sometimes that's that's through, through trade, sometimes that's through tariffs. It really just depends. In, in this case, Trump was supporting tariffs that propped up the aluminum and steel industry which employs not a lot of people, and actually ended up hurting U.S. automobile manufacturers that actually employ a lot more unionized workers. So it's kind of the, the opposite of what we would want on the left from, from tariffs. But all that's to say that Trump will occasionally release an ad. And I, I think anyone listening to this should go on YouTube and should go to look up, I think it's called America's Workers or The American Worker, a recent Trump ad. And that ad, in its tone and its rhetoric, could very well be from a left populist or labor-based party. So he occasionally has these notes. And obviously, for less informed voters, at least these rhetorical notes might sound more appealing than what Joe Biden is offering, which is a pivot to the suburbs, to Republican voters, to independent voters who really think Trump is beneath the presidency. The, their problem with him isn't his, his policy, isn't what he represents at a political level, but his tone and decorum and his quote-unquote undermining of American leadership in the world and so on. He doesn't suit the, uh, the majesty of the office. Yes. I should say that from a purely electoral strategy, I think the Biden bet is probably a better bet than the Bernie Kratt left bet. Because in our mode of how we win elections, we need to find a new voting block. We need more young workers turning out to vote. We need more low propensity voters, black and Latino voters, poor white voters who haven't moved. Like most, most workers, just like in the UK and other countries, who have stopped voting 
for the Democrats or in other contexts, any center left party have not actually gone over to the right wing party. They've just dropped out of the political process. So we need to get those people back. And I think we have a strategy that is both for winning elections and to creating the type of social base that can actually carry out a left social democratic program once we win an election. But if your goal is just to win an election or two elections or three elections and continue on the status quo, then the Biden strategy would seem to to work, but it obviously leaves an opening for right populists. The question is, who are these right populists in the U.S. and what do they stand for? Even someone like Bannon does not get behind Medicare for all. And that to me is just kind of incredible, because if you think of a figure like this, he has a large audience, but he's at the right wing fringe of American politics who probably doesn't have a lot to lose from alienating healthcare lobbyists because it's not like he's in power or running for an election. Can't even get behind a universal healthcare program that, by the way, is the Canadian style of universal healthcare. So we're not even advocating the creation of an American NHS, which I think would be a better plan in the long run. We're advocating just public health insurance. This is too far for any so-called right-wing populace. Even people, commentators who in the media sphere, like Sagar from The Hill and others, they worry about Medicare for all potentially undermining American competitiveness in the, the global economy. And those sorts of things could be the notes set by any conservative ever. So obviously the danger is there. I just don't see that constituency actually around. I think, in fact... The way in which the Trump presents a real danger isn't by adopting these right-wing economic populist ideas, but by polarizing the country into a culture war where he could present himself as someone who cares about working class values, vaguely defined, and is able to continue to win over white workers in particular without college educations. You know, so that's our proxy, obviously, for class, because the census doesn't ask, are you a proletarian or not? But roughly, education, you could say, is a proxy for, for class. And, and it is worrying that Trump is winning over these people. And the demographic of the Democratic Party is getting more and more elite, more and more based in the professional classes. This has been a turn that's happened since the, the 80s within the Democratic Party. Obviously, you saw something similar under the auspices of new labor and accelerated because of the conflict around Brexit in the UK. And I think we should be very worried about this trend and we should find a way to arrest it without engaging in the culture war, without, in other words, overcorrecting and saying what workers really want is a more conservative rhetoric. In fact, I think when what people actually want is the feeling that politicians care about their their needs and are speaking to them. And that means putting forward a popular, at the very least, social democratic election program behind behind social goods. And obviously, if the Republicans come around to doing that, then we're, we're really in trouble. Like Trump right now is getting by doing astronomically bad with, with black workers. 10, 12 percent the Republicans get a black, the black vote at best. Now, I'm not saying that Trump can win over the black vote if he adopted a different program, but I do think he could turn that 10% into 20%. And in razor thin elections, that might make all the difference. But 
he never pursued the route of a big jobs program funded through deficit finance. He never pursued the route of supporting reform on health care and other things. Ultimately, he's governing like you would expect a billionaire leader from a right-wing party to, to govern, and we should be grateful for that. On that point about the increasing professionalisation of voters for New Labour in the UK and, and the Democrats. So in the UK context, one of the kind of complicated factors of this is that the notion of class tends to be described in very sort of culturalist terms. So perhaps a college educated person working in, say, the gig economy in, in, in an urban centre will be coded as, as middle class, despite not owning property. They have sort of cultural capital, as it's often described, rather than actual actual assets. Whereas, say, in, in a small town in the north of England, somebody from a working class background who owns their own home and is perhaps a pensioner and is relatively economically comfortable is coded as, as working class. So, so do you think that's a complicating factor that we should be thinking about? Yes, definitely. So I think it's, it's obvious that, that we often treat class as merely a culture or an affect, and we associate it with certain regions exclusively. And that would mean, of course, that we're ignoring the black and brown workers in, in urban areas, for instance. And often, even on the left, this happens when people assume that black and brown people in cities are the poor and the, the marginalized and not necessarily working class people. In fact, our public sector in a city like New York is highly unionized, highly politically sophisticated, often West Indian working class people who come from places and traditions that are very deep and politicized, far more so than those in the United States, are at the, the helm of them. But even among people of progressive sentiment on the liberal left, we'll often just kind of consider them less than full political actors, if that makes sense. And then on the flip side, there are those who consider that the working class is just those in our in our Rust Belt, our you know declining industrial uh, regions, uh, similar to the north north of England. Or on the other hand, think that white people are only poor in Appalachia, you know, and there's not tons of white people who are hungry and suffering in our cities as well. And obviously, this is this is a symptom of of not having an organized working class movement. It's a symptom of of not having proper political education. It's a symptom of not really have a left that's thinking strategically. I do think, though, there's a tendency of this rhetoric to get to the point that says, so therefore, we could just forget about these regions and just focused on where we're already strong. And to me, it's a way of dressing up defeat. Oh, you know, we're really doing great in London. And we're doing terrible in areas that have historically voted for labor in the past. But that's okay because the new working class is all in these urban areas. And it's not just the UK where you see this discourse. It's very prevalent in Germany, especially among Die Linke, which is losing a lot of its traditional base in the east of Germany, where it's having a demographic crisis as people who voted for Die Linke since its creation and have some sort of association with the former East German government are getting older, becoming pensioners, and a lot of young workers are supporting the AFD. And, and the silver lining is we're still maintaining our 8%, don't worry, because we're making up for it with younger, browner workers in, in Berlin. And obviously the goal is to get every working class group, but we have to pay attention to, one, 
the electoral map. So in other words, like you want to get seats and actually it's probably all votes are not created equal for that reason. You don't want to just be piling up majorities in places where you're already winning. Exactly. And especially in a in a system as undemocratic as the the one in the the UK. And obviously our system is even more undemocratic. We've taken the worst features that we have inherited from from our colonial past with with whole new ones. But Also beyond that, traditionally as socialists, even beyond the electoral realm, and the last 10 years, 20 years, probably since the creation of Bloco in Portugal, when was that, 99 or something, to now has been an electoral turn for the left. And I think there's still an electoral opening, even though it's diminishing. So we'll probably have this for another 10, 20 years. But even in the broader strategic sense, all workers are not created equal. As a Marxist and socialist, this used to be common sense. Like, obviously, everybody is of the same worth from a moral and ethical standpoint. But workers have different strategic weight. Uh, me and you, Alex, can go on strike tomorrow. It won't make a difference. But but if... if I, I resent that, Basco, and I disagree vehemently. <laughs> but 1,000 dockers going on strike could shut down an entire region's economy. I mean, this is just... And, and the same thing, too, with how we're organizing and where we're focusing our organizing efforts. Like low-wage worker organizing is important. Everybody deserves a union. But what's more important is probably organizing not low-wage fast food workers, but low-wage workers in the logistics industries. Which is a particular checkpoint. Yeah, they're both paid the same shit wages. They're obviously, in a moral and ethical sense, both equally deserving of unions and representation in the left left support, of course. But when we're thinking about where we want to organize, you know, often we, or traditionally left would be able to say, okay, logistics is one of the, the key areas where we need to be organizing. Or they would say, we need to be organizing, uh, doubling down on our organizing efforts in hospitals. And obviously, everyone in a hospital, from a clerical worker in a hospital to a nurse, is going to be better paid than a minimum wage worker in another sector. And obviously, I know payment isn't the only measure of exploitation by any means. But we're obviously still making a strategic decision to focus on this group instead of a potentially more exploited and marginalized group, not because we intend to leave anyone behind, but because we're trying to create a political coalition and to galvanize a working class movement that, of course, will include all oppressed, excluded, marginalized groups. We have to figure out where to start from our position of historic weakness. So I'm both critical of a certain form of nostalgia that just says capitalism and the working class is this thing that's fixed into place in the 1950s or 60s. And this is, of course, very prevalent, especially in the UK, because you've had a long tradition of associating the working class were just manual workers. And in part because the UK actually had so many damn manual workers, it made some sense. Whereas other countries never had the percentage of the working class engaged in manual work as the as the UK did. And, and obviously there was various responses to this from left and right. You know, one of them being the response that that inspired some of New Labour to try to build coalition with forces of the the, the middle class. But I think fundamentally we're in danger of an overcorrection and that does worry me. So I don't want to make it seem like I'm taking neither side in this 
dispute, but I, I guess I, I'm taking neither side in this dispute. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.